You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. Hope you don't mind the new intro music just for this week, because we are still celebrating the fact that Donald fucking Trump is going to be a one-term president. Barack Obama got two terms. George W. Bush got two terms. Bill Clinton got two terms. The last time we elected a one-term president was 1988. So what just happened, if I may borrow a phrase from Joe Biden, what just happened is a big fucking deal. Joe Biden is going to be the 46th president of the United States and Kamala Harris is going to be our first woman vice president, our first black vice president, our first Indian American vice president. I should probably say that Joe Biden is going to be 46 unless Donald Trump quits between now and January 20th, which I would not put past him, in which case Mike Pence would be 46 and Biden would be 47, whatever the number, 45 is over and will soon be out. President-elect Joe Biden, once he gets sworn in, is going to take us back into the Paris Climate Accords. He's going to stop construction of Trump's border wall, which Trump spent billions on and only managed to complete 16 new miles of. Biden is going to rescind Donald Trump's executive orders that weaken environmental protections. He's not going to defund the World Health Organization or continue to sabotage NATO. And he's going to put people who know what they're doing in charge of our pandemic response. People who know what they're doing, just another way of saying, not Jared fucking Kushner. And I know it's not as important, but seeing Donald Trump and his shitty fucking wife and all of his toxic fucking children get kicked out of the White House and off of Air Force One. Not as important as reuniting the children Trump separated from their parents at the border or lifting Trump's ban on trans people in the military or getting a racist demagogue the fuck out of the bully pulpit. But seeing that happen, seeing them kicked out and kicked off, right up there at the top of the list of things I'm looking forward to. Also looking forward to paying a visit to Four Seasons Total Landscaping and saying a little prayer of thanks as I stand between the dildo shop and the crematorium. All right, that's the good news. That's just some of the good news. It's not even all of the good news. But there's bad news. First and foremost, 70 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. Five million fewer than voted for Joe Biden in what we keep being told was a close election but wasn't or wouldn't have been if it weren't for the fucking Electoral College. It's sad to think the 70 million Americans, 70 million of our fellow citizens looked at the racism and the lies and the incompetence and the hatred and the death toll, not to mention the deranged tweet storms of the last four years, and said, yeah, we want four more years of that. Also, more bad news, although Biden won the blue wave we were all hoping for, it didn't come. Democrats lost seats in the House, and odds are good Mitch McConnell will still be running the Senate next year. So we aren't going to get statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico or an expanded Supreme Court or a public option or the kind of stimulus package we are going to need. But while Democrats didn't take control of the Senate on Election Day, Mitch McConnell doesn't have control of it yet. Neither of the Republican candidates in Georgia, the incumbents, got over 50 percent of the vote. So they're both now facing runoff elections against Democratic challengers. Democrats turned Georgia blue this year in the presidential race. First time that's happened since Bill Clinton won Georgia in 1992. And while Republicans typically win runoff elections in Georgia, Republicans also typically and recently won presidential elections in Georgia. If we have learned anything over the last week, it's not to underestimate Stacey Abrams. 
She did the organizing that won Georgia for Biden, and she says the Dems can win both these runoffs, and I believe her. A quick word about exit polls that show Trump doing better with black men and Latino voters and even getting a bigger share of the LGBT vote this time than he did in 2016. While it is true that more people voted for Trump this year and those votes came from somewhere, and while it is inarguable that white people and straight people and wealthier people overwhelmingly supported Trump and are responsible for Trump, we need to take these exit polls with a huge grain of salt. We just spent the last week decrying the inaccuracy of pre-election polls that showed Biden up 10 points and Democrats favored to win the Senate in Maine and Iowa and South Carolina and McGaines in the House. It's true, again, that more people voted for Trump this time out than in 2016. But let's wait for more research to be done and more data to come in before we start drawing conclusions or forming any circular firing squads. We have plenty of time to unpack what went wrong and to figure out how to defeat Trumpism in the future because it is obviously and sadly going to outlive the Trump administration. We dodged a bullet, but we did not disarm the assholes who are shooting at us. But again, defeating Donald fucking Trump, a big fucking deal. And we should take a moment to celebrate that fact. And one non-election-related news item before we get to your calls. Irvin Baxter, a reverend and a televangelist, went on TV earlier this year and blamed COVID-19 on fornicators and cohabitators and the 95% of women out there who aren't virgins on their wedding nights. And early last week, Reverend Irvin Baxter died of COVID-19. Now, if fornication only killed televangelists, well— If that were the case, let's just say that pointing that out isn't something a televangelist should risk doing because it's not exactly a disincentive. Fornication rates would go through the roof. But sadly, COVID-19 doesn't just kill televangelists, so there's no need, fornicators, to up your game. But please do keep wearing your masks when you're out in public. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, no ads, more calls, more guests. Rabbi Jeremy Gerber comes back on the show to talk with us about blowjobs and mitzvahs. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a quarantine success story. My girlfriend and I live in separate households and In effort to maintain safety during coronavirus, we have not slept together or even done so much as kiss in over seven months, but we're still finding ways to have dates and be together during this time. So during lockdown, when we had shelter in place orders, we did a lot of things like watching movies at the same time in our respective houses and then talking about them. We video chatted a lot. We did sexy webinars together, which was really fun. And then once the shelter-in-place order was lifted, uh, we started doing picnic dates in parks. So we'll meet up with some takeout and some camp chairs and just spend a few hours enjoying being in each other's presence, which is really lovely. So before one of those dates, I had an idea for something that I thought would be fun, I went online and ordered black light markers. And before I left for the date, I wrote messages to her all over my body in places that you could feasibly see while I was wearing my dress. So on my chest, on my arms, on my legs. And about halfway through the date, when it was starting to get dark, I handed her a black light flashlight and said, 
okay, I wrote messages to you all over me. Now you can find them. And it was so much fun. It felt really intimate and close. And that's just super scarce right now. So it was just really special. And I wanted to pass that on in case it inspired anyone else. Thanks for calling in and sharing your quarantine success story. If you want to start next week's show with your quarantine or just your sex success story, give us a call, 206-302-2064. We like to open the shows with something positive before we get to everybody's problems. And next week's positive, uplifting sex story could be yours. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis bisexual woman in her 30s in Canada on the West Coast. And I'm calling with a poly question that I'm hoping you or your listeners can answer for me. I've been dating a guy in his 30s for three years now, and the first year of our relationship was absolute bliss. We were still in our honeymoon phase a year on when he brought up the conversation about opening up the relationship. I was totally shocked at first, but he expressed that he'd always felt he had needs and desires outside of a traditional monogamous relationship, but had never felt safe enough to voice that in his past relationships. His favorite fantasy is a female-female-male threesome, and he asked if I had ever thought about being with a woman. I expressed that I had been bi-curious, but due to my upbringing, had never acted on any impulses. He encouraged me to explore that more by way of opening up the relationship for me to see women. I was so excited, and I agreed. He then threw in, well, if you're going to see other women, then I should be able to as well. So in the spirit of being GGG, I all of a sudden found myself exploring an open relationship and testing my sexuality all at the same time. It was so much all at once. Some of it was fun. We did manage to have a few threesomes with a friend of ours, but honestly, it was emotionally miserable. I didn't have the language at the time to express my wants, needs, or fears, and as a result, I became poly under duress. I threw myself into research mode to try to give myself some tools to help me deal with the issues and emotions that were coming up. And, funny enough, your podcast was one of the tools that helped me go from a pud into a successful, thriving poly person. So thank you so much, Dan. It took me about a year and a half of listening to yours and others' podcasts to switch my mindset, but I couldn't be happier. My primary partner took a while to come around to the idea of me dating other men as well, but he did manage to get there after I accidentally made a connection with a guy while we were out. I met my secondary partner just before COVID blew up and we've been seeing each other over quarantine for the last seven months and are ridiculously in love. However, my primary partner, who was excited about opening the relationship in the beginning, has struggled to make connections with other women and when he has, they haven't been great. He hasn't gone on many dates in the last two years and I've watched him struggle going from excited to poly under duress because of my success and his lack thereof. I know the reality is that it's harder for poly guys and that we are in the middle of a pandemic But how can I help my primary partner go from PUD back to Excited Polly? What an interesting journey you've been on. Your partner proposed opening the relationship and he didn't propose it in the most honest, direct or straightforward way. Once he learned that you were bi-curious, he suggested opening the relationship on your side to allow you to date other women. And then when you agreed to that, he said, well, in fairness, I should really be able to see other women as well, which is, you know, probably what he wanted to do in the first place. He wanted to have an open relationship. He wanted to have you and other women and have other women with you. And then things got emotionally complicated when you met a guy and you wanted your polyamory. You're now fully embraced polyamory. As you'd moved from PUD, poly under duress, to happily polyamorous, you wanted it to allow 
for you also to date other men, see other men, you know, your the people you're primarily attracted to sexually and romantically, just as you are allowing, you know, in fairness, you are allowing your boyfriend to see other women, the people he is primarily sexually and romantically attracted to. So in fairness, just as he gets to see other women because you got to see other women, you should get to see other men because he gets to see other women. Now, you've arrived at this place uh, where a lot of poly couples find themselves, where one person in the primary relationship has a secondary partner and the other doesn't. And it's my feeling that if both people have to have the same thing, equal bowls of ice cream at all times, if one person is going to be sulking and unhappy and unable to feel compersion, you know, joy in their partner's joy, the joy their partner gets with other people, gets from other people, if they're not able to feel that compersion when their partner, their primary partner, has a secondary partner and they don't, then they may not be cut out for egalitarian polyamory. What your boyfriend may be telling you here is that polyamory, your freedom to date other people is conditional and it's conditioned upon him having a secondary partner at the exact same time, him having a bowl of ice cream that has just as much ice cream in it as your bowl has in it. And that's not realistic or possible at all times in poly relationships where both partners, both primary partners have other partners. It's You can't always sync that up, you having a partner, him having a partner. And it would be unfair to the people he might date, the people you might date if you had to end those relationships if your primary partner's relationship with their secondary partner ended, if you had to break up with this guy now or every time your boyfriend didn't have his own other girlfriend, his own secondary partner, that would just be emotional torture for this guy or any guy that you might date. If the whole thing hinged upon the relationship success of a person <laughs> that ain't you and ain't your secondary but matters to you, their relationship success with others, not with you, that's not something that you can make work. That's not something for you to to even fairly attempt to make work. And I hate to say this, but you know, if your boyfriend isn't cut out for poly and you are happily polyamorous now and polyamory is what you would like, it's how you would like to live, it's the relationship model that you adopted at his request and now having lived it for a while – not a relationship model that you want to walk away from, then it may be your secondary partner who is a better primary partner for you than your primary partner is. Your primary partner may be happier in a relationship where he's with a woman who is bi and they together sometimes have sex with other women, but she doesn't have relationships with other women or men that are independent of her relationship with him. He may be happier with the unicorn model of openness than he is with the polyamorous model of openness. And you clearly are happily poly and you may therefore be happier in your poly relationship if your secondary graduates to primary status and your current primary is downgraded to X. Hey Dan, I'm a 43-year-old non-binary person in Sydney. 
Australia. I'm ringing because I am madly in love with this other non-binary person. Uh, We've been seeing each other for about a year and it has been one of the most beautiful, eye-opening, lovely things because finally somebody understands me. The sex has been phenomenal. The connection is beautiful. We've always been poly and so about six months ago they took a new lover which is all good, but this new lover is a lesbian-identifying woman who is a turf and a radical anti-trans activist, an anti-vaxxer. Like, she's really hardcore. And my lover has kept seeing this woman for six months, and we just keep having this conversation where I'm like, um, I, I love you, but you're... <laughs> Your lover is really bad for the planet and for the people and bad for my mental health and non-binary people and trans people everywhere. But they break up and then they get back together over and over. And um, so I finally said to my lover that I adore that we had to split because I couldn't reconcile and I couldn't work it out. But I'm just so fucking sad. Yeah. And I just miss them terribly. Because they knew me in a way that nobody else has known me. So I just, what do I do? Do I try and keep talking to my lover and explaining that this woman is bad news? Or do I just walk away and let it go? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you're hurting right now. I'm so sorry that you were dating someone that you thought you knew. And they have now demonstrated to you that they weren't who you believed them to be that they didn't love and respect you the way that you assumed they did. And all of that is clear in the choice that they've made at this moment, the choice to be with this anti-trans bigoted activist, to be with this anti-vaxxer. I assume now when I hear that someone is an anti-vaxxer, they may also be a QAnon nutter as well. And your former partner has chosen this toxic person over you for reasons that must not be evident to you or anyone else, for reasons that I couldn't even begin to speculate about and and how painful that must be, how negating that must feel about the time that you've spent with this person, about the emotional investment you've made in them. And yeah, that's just going to be painful and I'm sure listening to me recount it like this and and describe it like this is just adding to your pain. But I don't think that you should make an attempt to keep this person who's rejected you in this way in your life. They know why you ended the relationship and I think they should have to pay some price for the choice that they've made and and a part of that price is not having any part of you in their life, not deserving to have any part of you in their life. So I don't think you should attempt. As much as I admire people who are friends with exes, I don't think that you should be friends with this particular ex at this particular time. If they circle back to you in six months or or a year with an apology and an explanation for why they took leave of their senses and made the choice that they did, maybe then you could 
at least be friends again, maybe get back together again. But that would be a, a ways off. And yeah, friends with exes, I, I think that's so important. But sometimes an ex can't be a part of your life. You know, sometimes an ex is emotionally abusive, physically abusive, toxic, narcissistic, and having them in your life isn't something that you can do. And you don't have to perform, I'm friends with my exes and keep shitty exes in your life just to be able to say, hey, I'm friends with my exes and that makes me a good person. But clearly this person meant a lot to you. And so rather than tell yourself they'll never be back in your life, I think you should tell yourself they're out of your life for now and maybe one day if they come to their senses, they can re-enter your life. But they're going to have to re-enter your life on your terms and they're going to have to re-enter your life at least initially with an apology, a heartfelt one and a really good explanation as to why they made the choice that they did, why they chose this other person, this toxic, shitty person over you. And if they can't come up with a satisfactory explanation, an explanation that satisfies you, they can't be a part of your life. Hey, Dan, I'm a 35-year-old guy from Canada, and I'm calling about a question about my current situation. I'm, I've been married for four years in a relationship for with this person for more than 10 years and we have two kids and uh, the last while, last couple of years haven't been um, great. Our intimacy has gone downhill. A lot to do with my attraction to my wife has lessened over time. We've not taken the best care of ourselves, especially we have different metabolisms and I understand there's, you know, uh, stigma or body shaming that I don't want to be part of, but when it comes to our situation, it does play a, a big role in how little I feel my spouse is taking care of herself and does not exercise much or, you know, eat junky foods. And we've had these discussions and she doesn't really care about making much changes. I can see it. And then resentment has come, resentment is gone. And uh, we just mostly have been friends, you know, and I try to be nice about it and not nice about it, which obviously is the wrong way to go. And I feel bad and do regret the things I've said. So when it comes to our situation, I, you know, I don't been contemplating separation and not sure what to, to do. Just not looking for exactly for permission to, to end it, but you know, there's still love there and there's still a lot of, to hold on to, but for the longest time, it's just switches have been flipped. Not sure if they can be flipped back. You can't tell your wife what to do with her body. And I think you know that now because you tried to tell your wife what to do with her body. You say that you've tried arguing with her. You've tried confronting her. You've tried and nothing has worked. You've tried being nice about it, supportive about it. You've tried not being nice about it and neither thing has worked. So your wife at this moment in your lives together, this moment in your marriage, at this moment in the stress fest that is parenting – during a pandemic, your wife isn't prioritizing taking care of herself in the way that you would like her to, perhaps in the way that you've been taking care of yourself. It is hard, particularly in a sexually exclusive relationship, when you begin to feel like that person that you're with, that you've made this commitment to, I'm going to have sex with no one else but you for the rest of my life, seems to not value that commitment and seems to regard or seems to take for granted that commitment. 
they don't have to take care of themselves, which does not mean maintaining one particular body weight all their lives, which is impossible for almost all people. People's body weights are going to fluctuate. People's bodies are going to change as they age, particularly after they have children. But to maintain themselves, to take care of themselves for you and for you to take care of yourselves for them is one way that we show someone that we value the commitment that they've made, particularly the sexually exclusive commitment that they've made to us. And it can be hard when you see somebody not taking care of themselves, whatever that looks like in their life. It can be hard if you're their committed partner not to feel taken for granted, not to feel unvalued. And so what do you do with that? Well, you can reverse engineer the relationship, the understanding of the relationship, the terms of the relationship, perhaps shifting your expectations around sex and sexual exclusivity if there's any time in your lives or availability or possibility in your lives considering the pandemic makes it hard to find other partners. Maybe you would resent her less and she would resent you less or the pressure you're putting on her if you weren't each other's only sexual outlets. If you could say to each other, you know what, clearly we're at a stage in our marriage and at a time in our lives where the focus isn't sex, it's parenting. It's taking care of these two children that we've made. So we release each other from the expectation of monogamy flawlessly and perfectly executed over the next however many years that our focus has shifted. And then maybe down the road, as many middle-aged couples do after your kids are a little bit older, less dependent on you at all times, you'll be able to reconnect sexually and maybe reestablish a completely ironclad monogamous commitment again. But for right now, maybe since hectoring the wife doesn't work, since being mean to her about her appearance doesn't work, and being nice to her about her appearance doesn't work, stop trying to make it work. Ask for an accommodation. Renegotiate the terms of the relationship. Approach each other with different expectations. And maybe you can love each other through this, through what may be many sexless years together before you can reconnect. All that said, time is a meat grinder and it makes hamburger of us all. And one of the things we look for in a committed long-term relationship is someone who is in love with us and is going to love us even as our bodies change, even as our priorities change. And it may be that early in a relationship, you know, when you meet somebody earlier in your life, you're prioritizing your appearance or diet and exercise in a way that it just isn't possible to later in life, just isn't possible to when you have kids, when you're stressed out, when there is a worldwide pandemic and a worldwide slide toward totalitarianism and authoritarianism, and it can make it hard to prioritize the things that you prioritized earlier in your life and earlier in the relationship. And you want to be loved and appreciated and still found attractive for the person that you are now. And sometimes that requires a little bit of effort on both sides to connect sexually and erotically on an intellectual level, on an emotional level, in such a way that may compensate for the ways in which physically you've both changed over the years and make it possible for you two to still have a sexual connection that isn't so tied to surfaces and appearances and maintenance. Hey, Dan, I really need your advice. I am a 30-year-old woman, and the other day I was hanging out with my dad, and I kind of went through his phone when he wasn't looking, 
and saw that he was sexting and meeting up with other men. Totally normal, you know, don't have a problem with it, except that my father is married to my stepmom and has been for 25 years. I know they used to be swingers, and I kind of thought that he was bisexual. Um, My stepmom actually knows that he's been cheating on her, and I know she's really upset about it. I am also bisexual and newly into polyamory, and since my dad is obviously hiding this, I feel like I should talk to him about it. In the past, I've also struggled with my sexuality, and I don't want him to feel alone like I did. So how in the heck do I go about coming out to my dad and making him feel safe to come out to me? I'm hoping that if we have this conversation, it might bring us closer together and maybe he can also open up to my stepmom and they can better their relationship. Don't go through your father's fucking phone when you're hanging out with your father. Your father's marriage, his relationship with your stepmother, their sex life 25 years into their marriage is none of your fucking business. And just the fact that you invaded his privacy, looked at his phone, discovered he was by like you are, doesn't give you the right to try to jump in and fix your father, fix the marriage, reconcile your stepmother and your father, push him toward addressing the infidelities. Honestly, stay the butt the fuck out. This is none of your fucking business. You can come out to your dad. You can tell your dad that you are bisexual. And then if he wants to come out to you, he can make that choice in that moment to come out to you. You outed your father to yourself when you invaded his privacy. And that wasn't fair. That wasn't right. That wasn't kosher. And because you invaded his privacy, you've put yourself in this position where you know things about your dad that you can't unknow. But none of the things that you know about your dad require you to take any action. It is none of your business. Your dad's marriage to your stepmom is none of your business. So even though you can't unknow what you know about your dad, that he's meeting up with men for sex, you don't have to involve yourself in that. You can come out to your dad. You can tell him you're bi. You can open up to him about your bi life and what it has meant to you to be a bisexual person and hope that he seizes the opportunity to come out to you too. But if he doesn't, then you're going to have to do something that you failed to do when you picked up your father's phone and invaded his privacy when you're hanging out, and that is respect his privacy and his right to keep this to himself if he wants to keep this to himself. And again, your dad's marriage is none of your fucking business, just like the guys who may or may not be sucking your dad's dick are none of your fucking business. And the shit on your dad's phone and on your dad's computer None of your fucking business. Stay off your dad's phone. Hi, Dan. I am a 31-year-old gay man, and I am dating a 25-year-old guy who is sort of in the closet. So we've been dating for about six months now. He's out to his mom for about several years, and he recently came out to his older brother on 4th of July this past year. But the big elephant in the room is that he's not out to his military dad, whom he's afraid to come out to. I love him very much, and we've both already expressed wanting to marry each other, but this whole not having come out yet situation is starting to annoy and frustrate me. I can't go over his house while his parents are there. I have to sneak into his basement at night after 10 p.m. and leave in the morning at 5 a.m. 
before the parents wake up. When I invite him over to my parents' house, where I currently am staying because of the pandemic, he has to lie constantly. I'm out to my parents and they are fine with me and they have met him many, many times. As a fully grown man, I'm 31, I said, I don't like feeling like a secret and having to go back in the closet, so to speak. But I also want to be respectful about my boyfriend's coming out journey. But at the same time, I just want to throw my hands in the air and tell him to get it over with so that we can both live our lives without shame and sort of, quote unquote, start our relationship. So your boyfriend came out to his mom and his brother just a few months ago, just in July of this year? To his mom about three years ago. And oh, oh to, okay. To his brother on July 4th this year. And how did mom react? How did his brother react? From what he rem- from what he told me, um, his mom was very okay with it, and so was his brother. Uh, in fact, something kind of happened on July fourth, and that triggered my boyfriend to come out to his brother, mm-hmm. and they sort of had a heart to heart about how growing up, um, his dad sort of mistreated him, and uh, you know, his dad was a typical military dad and sort of conservative and. And mistreated you, you your know, boyfriend in particular, or mistreated both sons. In particular, my boyfriend. Yeah, um, he said that he, his dad would call him, you know, faggot, and would use that word jokingly. And if he uh, was kind of sort of acting girly, would you know say the f word? Right, right. Um, and, him, and and did his yeah. brother or mother have anything to say to him about whether he should or shouldn't come out to his dad? So he hasn't told me. He didn't. He never told me what his brother said about that, and neither has his mom, if I can remember. It's really up to him. His mom doesn't encourage him, but his mom does also doesn't discourage him to come out to his dad. Wow. It, ju- it just seems like that's something that he and his mother, particularly if he came out to her three years ago, might have discussed at some length. Um, but the only other question I had for you, and really the reason I'm calling, was to ask if his mom knows about you or has met you. Yeah. He, he's told his mom about me, but I've never met her. So she doesn't know you're sneaking in and out of the house in the middle of the night. The both of us think that neither of his parents have any idea because when I do go to his house, I go at around 30, which is when they go upstairs to their bedroom. And luckily the basement has um, a separate backdoor entrance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't Ironically. have to go to the front door. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I leave really early in the morning around 5 a.m. before they get up. So they really don't have any idea about me. And you leave uh, through that door because it's an exit as well as an entry. There's all sorts of double entendres here that I'm going to have to pick up and deploy. Yeah. I'm, I can't resist them. I'm, I'm too infantile. <laughs> it's, it's totally fine. I, I actually have joked, about, joked him about that. Um, I've also told him the way his whole basement situation is sort of preventing him from coming out because he has this dungeon. We jokingly refer to it as like his sex dungeon Mm -hmm. and he's able to sort of just hide out there and not face his dad in particular because he can just hide down there. And when I come over, I just hide down there with him and the, the past people that he's hooked up with, they also just go to the basement. How big an idiot is his father? Well, financially, he does really well, but I can't really speak on his character because I've never met him. Well, it's just it just the dude's 25 years old. He's been sneaking men in and out of his parents' house for a long time before he started dating you. His parents have ears. 
They go upstairs. That doesn't mean they stay upstairs. They have windows, mm-hmm. I assume, on the second floor. If yeah, they do. S- somebody's c- cutting through the yard to get to the back door. So yeah, they that's get exactly to your, what I do. Get to your boyfriend's back door. The odds that they peeked out the window at some point seem high to me. And it just doesn't seem credible or plausible that dad doesn't know or suspect mm-hmm. or hasn't seen mm-hmm. or heard. Mm-hmm. I mean, you come into the house in the middle of the night, you sodomize their son in the basement. Is he silent? Yeah. Do you guys not make a sound? Well, the basement is technically two floors down from the bedroom, the upstairs, the second floor. So, and it's a, it's kind of a tall house. So I'm, Oh my God. There many times I'm confident they can't hear us. I, I live in a but, tall house and the, the, the second floor bedrooms are two floors above the basement. If somebody farts in the basement, we can hear it on the second floor. <laughs> yeah, if there's vents in the basement, which I don't think there are, they might be able to hear. But speaking on whether they're, they, um, the dad knows or not, I actually have talked to him about you know, the fact that he came out to his mom three years ago and, you know, his mom and dad love each other. I, I tell him there's no way that his mom hasn't told his dad or prepared him that, hey, look, right. um, he might tell you something soon. And he just says, no, no, my mom wouldn't do that. She's not like that. And I just say, look, they're married to each other. They love each other. They don't keep secrets from each other. And I don't think your mom would keep this from him. I think, he would, I think she would tell him a little bit maybe not come out for you, but just warn your dad a little bit. When I first came out to family, started coming out to family, I came out to one of my brothers, but not my other brother or my sister. And I came out to my mom, but not my dad. And it put my mom in Mm -hmm. this terrible position where she was keeping the secret from my father. And sometimes it was difficult for her to keep that secret. And eventually my mom sat me down after an incident that I've talked about on uh, past podcasts and said, you didn't come out to me. You yanked me into the closet with you. And now you've yanked your brother in and you've yanked one of your aunts in, but not your other aunts. And it sucks. Mm -hmm. My mother was like, it does. I get it now. It sucks to be closeted because I am now closeted Mm -hmm. and I can't, and I don't want to be in the closet anymore than you wanted to be in the closet as it turns out. So Mm -hmm. my mom was sort of like pressuring me, encouraging me, hurrying me on my coming out journey to come the fuck out to my father Mm -hmm. already because I'd put her in this impossible position. Yeah. I think you need to encourage or push pressure. Go ahead and pressure him. He's a grown-ass adult man, 25 fucking years old, old enough to get his butt fucked in his parents' basement, old enough to look in them in the (laughs) eyes and tell them the goddamn truth. It's okay to, I I think, pressure an adult to do what an adult needs to do. You know, if he was 17 years old and his parents could pack him off to reparative therapy or to a conversion therapy camp on an island somewhere or throw him out of the house – or you know, prevent him from getting an education or not pay for his education, and he was really vulnerable to retaliation from angry homophobic parents, that would be one thing. It would be shitty then to pressure him to come out. But 25 mm-hmm. years old, and the pressure you're going to put on him is not you tell them or I tell them. The pressure you put on him mm-hmm. is I'm not going to keep playing this game forever. I don't like yeah. being a dirty little secret. You're a part yeah. of my family now, and yeah. I – if we're going to be together, you guys have talked about marriage. I can't be your closeted husband. Yeah. And so you're going to have to do this. And I think I'm worth doing it for sooner rather than later. And then give him a time frame. 
How much longer are you willing to put up with this? Yeah, my my best friend actually suggested that, who is also, I think, your number one fan. And she told me, you know, maybe you should give him a year. You guys have been dating for seven months. Give him five months and say, look, I love you, but I'm willing to put up with this for five more months on our one-year anniversary. Right. Um, and I sort of agree with that. I, I agree too. I, and, and don't let any, you know, we hear this sometimes in gay land, you know, you can't rush anybody in their coming out process. It's always really personal. Yeah. People have to do it in their own yeah. time. But some people get stuck in a place where they're just being cowardly or they're projecting onto parents, you know, some worst case scenario so that they don't have to, you know, over up and tell them the truth. You know, they mm-hmm. exaggerate the negative reaction they think they're going to get so that they can justify not coming out. And then they regret it when yeah. they finally do come out. They regret waiting so long. And mm-hmm. if his father was a homophobe when he was growing up, as my father was a homophobe when I was growing up, we didn't start to have a relationship or repair our relationship until after I came out to him and he apologized to me. Yeah. So I can't yeah, imagine he has much that. of a relationship with his father now. But he might in the future. Yeah. And, you know, with my dad, part of it was the information he had available to him at the time, which wasn't much. You know, there wasn't a lot of info out there about parenting a gay kid. And what my dad believed and my mom believed was that homosexuality was sort of this thing your your kid could drift towards. And if you didn't want your kid drifting towards homosexuality, you gave them a big nudge. Mm -hmm. If you saw any evidence and I was mm-hmm. effeminate and I got those same nudges, right? That your boyfriend got. And mm-hmm. it was really painful. I think his parents probably have less of an excuse because, you know, 10 years ago when he was still a child, they had more information available to them if they were so motivated as to get their hands on it, to Google it. And they mm-hmm. didn't. And so they failed him in a way that may be harder to forgive than how my parents failed me. But they can't mm-hmm. get to forgiveness in adult relationships until they know who he is, until he comes out to them, until he risks it. And the other thing I would encourage you to say to him is something I've said on the podcast a lot. And if you've listened to the shows, you've heard me say this. He needs to shift from fearing their rejection or his father's rejection to making his father fear his rejection. He gets to decide wow. who's in his life as an adult. And your only leverage yeah. over your parents is your presence. And if yeah. his father and mom can't love and accept him – then he should, well, move the fuck out, get his own apartment, stop living in their basement, stop yeah. sneaking boys in and out. I, I'm sorry. I get so stuck on that. He, he Dad knows. <laughs> like, you have the sixth sense when you live in a house. Like, I know when a door or window has been opened. I know when someone's come into the house. And I live in a big house. The odds mm-hmm. that this military guy yeah. doesn't have any sort of sense of perimeter awareness and – this 31 year old gay guy is sneaking into his house and boning his son. And he says, no, I just, I really have a hard time believing that all that said, you know, after you get him to do this uh, and hopefully he'll be grateful to you after he does this, because hopefully he'll get a better reaction from his dad than perhaps he's anticipated or imagined he might to justify not coming out to him. Uh, you may miss this one day, you know what the kind of sneaking around you two are doing right now. It's the way like, gay kids sneak around when they're 15. I felt like I was in high school. Yeah, yeah. Sneaking around. My husband had a football player who wouldn't talk to him at school who would sneak into his parents' house uh, and they would have sex. 
And, you know, it's one of his fondest memories. But at the time, it was shot through with, like, fear and panic and shame. And the stakes were so high because if his parents caught him, oh, my God, what was going to happen? Right? But now he sometimes looks back at the, uh, you know, looks back at that relationship with great fondness and longing maybe to relive or re-experiencing that one more time. So enjoy the next five months. Right. Enjoy the sneaking around now that you know that it's going to end because he's either going to come out to his parents and you're going to keep seeing him or you're going to end the relationship. Mm-hmm. Good luck. Give us a call back. Let us know how it goes. I- I'm sure everyone's going to want to hear how this plays out. OK. Thank you so much, Dan. I love you so much. Thank you. Bye bye. Hi, Dan. So I um, might have watched a little bit of like blowjob pee porn lately and my boyfriend doesn't think that it's possible to pee a little bit and then stop and then pee a little bit more. And I think that that's a thing that you can work on the way that a woman can work on a kegel muscle. Maybe like maybe when you pee, you stop a little bit and then you pee some more. Of course a man can stop and start his stream of urine. Kegel exercises pelvic floor muscles, not just for the ladies. Men can and should do their kegels, particularly if they don't want to experience much or any urinary incontinence as they age. And how you do your kegels, how some guys can learn to do their kegels, because you can do them without interrupting the stream of urine, is to stand at the urinal or stand at the toilet and pee and then bear down on what are your kegel muscles, guys, to stop the flow of urine. It isn't necessarily a very comfortable feeling to interrupt that flow of urine, but you can do it. It feels like there's pressure building up behind those muscles because you've already released your bladder. It feels that way because there is pressure building up behind the kegel muscles when you cut off the stream. But you can definitely edit the stream. You can Morse code the stream. You can splash, splash, splash it out make words and phrases if you want. But yeah, of course a guy can interrupt his stream, can stop his stream of urine. You've seen the videos to prove it. Maybe you should sit your boyfriend down and make him watch a few of those videos or just have your boyfriend Google men's Kegel exercises and all sorts of instructional videos that aren't pornographic pop right up. Hi, Dan. I am a 29-year-old straight female and I got married in December. My husband and I have a great relationship. We definitely have problems, but we are really open uh, with our communication and kind of know how to like work through things. But yeah, like sexually, it's always been amazing. But two things. Number one, my husband pretty much always goes down on me. Like before sex, there's maybe Every other time he'll, he won't, but like almost every time he does. And it's great. He loves it. He enjoys it. I enjoy it. It definitely helps me a lot. But the thing is, I don't enjoy going down on him as much. And he knows this. He's accepted it. But I know that he would rather me go down on him more often. I have a lot of excuses. I don't really like the taste. It's hard for me to breathe out of my nose due to seasonal allergies. I have a pretty bad gag reflex, uh, so bad that I can only use like one brand of toothpaste to make sure I won't throw up in the morning. So I just kind of want tips on like 
how I could make myself enjoy it more. Second off, we have been practicing uh, the Jewish practices of mikvah, meaning that we do not touch whenever I have my period and then for seven days after until I can immerse into the bath. It was fine a few months ago because I was on seasonal birth control and only had my period every three months. So it was only once every three months that we wouldn't touch each other for like 12 days. But now we're starting to try to try for children. And so I'm off my birth control and having my period every month. And it just sucks to not touch each other for like half of every month. I am not particularly close uh, with many other women who follow this. And if I am not, I don't think they're the kind of people I would want to discuss sexual desires with. (laughs) Um, So I'm wondering if you have any suggestions because it's hard for both me and my husband. We have tried mutual masturbation and stuff, but like even just not hugging or kissing is difficult during that time. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Rabbi Jeremy Gerber is the rabbi of Congregation Ohev Shalom in Wallingford, Pennsylvania, just outside Philadelphia. He's been the rabbi there for 12 years. Hey, Rabbi Gerber, thank you for coming back on the show. You were on the show once before. I was, yeah. It was great to be back. Thanks for having me on. So uh, I can quickly answer the first half of this uh, caller's question. I, I assume that's not necessarily your area of expertise. My advice to the caller would <laughs> right. just be uh, sometimes uh, a really wet hand job is indistinguishable from a great blow job. And if you just get your hands down there, get them wet, get them spitty, get them sloppy, and use a little mouth but mostly hands, uh, your husband will feel like he's getting oral and – you know, if you blindfold him, he'll probably not be able to tell the difference. So get down there with your hands. That would be my advice. So now, Rabbi, what I wanted to bring you in on was part two. Mitvah. What the heck is that? I thought you said mitzvah at first, but that's not that's something else. Correct. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you had a chance to, to kind of look it up. But yeah, so I I wasn't sure if she was gonna give you more kind of detail about it. But like the the mikvah with a K is not the same as a mitzvah. So mikvah, like a ritual immersion. So there are lots of times in life when you can use it, like when someone converts to Judaism, kind of like a baptism, like the last thing they do is go to a mikvah, which can be just a body of water. You can go to an ocean. You can't go to like, can't use your bathtub, but you could go to an ocean. But there are ritual baths. There's like one here in Philly and there's, you know, they're all over the place. You often run through Orthodox communities, but there are, um, so people use them like sometimes some men use them like before they get married or even on Fridays. But especially I think the thing that they're often most associated with is that after a woman has her period and is done, she would ritually immerse in the mikvah. So that's kind of what she's talking about is that you, you're, you know, you're sort of have your period for a few days and then eventually when it's done, then you go to the mikvah and then some people still wait a few more days. Um, and then, so it sounds like she's, you know, pretty traditional if they're like literally not even touching or two weeks, not just that they, she would go in the mikvah and they wouldn't have sex. That's not always true. Not everybody has that kind of stricture that they, I mean, some people, some Jewish people don't go to the mikvah at all, but if you do, you're usually kind of more orthodox. And then even the not touching at all is, is interesting. You know, that's sort of an interesting I can wrap my head around a, a ritual bath, a baptism. I'm Catholic. I know what a baptism is, it, baptism is and holy water is, you know, before, before prayers or uh, before a wedding. But 
this idea of having to be cleansed after menstruation yeah. and to be untouchable yeah. during menstruation and for a period after menstruation, uh, I worry about what message that sends and what exactly is being embraced or endorsed here, uh, embraced by the caller or endorsed by by this practice, if it's related to menstruation in, in this way. Can you help me out with that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, so, you know, in some ways I'm probably, it's sort of a funny conversation for you and I as two men to have. So I would also say that if you wanted to kind of you know, dig into this. If you wanted to, to jump into the deep end of this pool, Dan, um, I could recommend a couple of women rabbis who probably could speak to it better. But I would say, you know, sometimes you talk to Muslim women and they reclaim the notion of the hijab. You know, it's like you and I can look at it and say that this is sexist and misogynist, and I don't subscribe to it. Like, my, my wife doesn't do this. Like, as, a, as conservative Jews, capital C, not small c, it's the name of the movement, mm-hmm. you know, we don't, we don't, do, we don't do this so, so, so commonly. But I do have friends who do go to the mikvah and who, who reclaim it. And one of the things I was going to mention to her is there's a resource called Mayim Chaim. It's M-A-Y-Y-I-M. I don't know why they spelled it with two Y's, but M-A-Y-Y-I-M and then H-A-Y-Y-I-M. Mayim Chaim. And, and it's, a, it's a more modern mikvah that is reclaiming the idea of like choosing to, be, to, to, to make yourself pure. You're right that the way you're describing it, the mikvah was traditionally a misogynist. It came out of a misogynist worldview, right? Men are like squeaked out by women having their periods. What's with the bleeding? Mm-hmm. That's where it starts. But, but, and that's why I think a lot of non-Orthodox just don't use it at all. And I don't subscribe to it. But I went to the mikvah once before I got married. And I will say it was a very, it, it does feel kind of transformative. And then I also know that some people today use it like after they, you know, are in remission after cancer, or if they survive a rape. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, there are lots of ways that people use it as a ritual to to restart. Yeah, the, the context there is different, like what you're being cleansed of or what you're washing yourself yeah. after, you know, after you survive cancer, uh, after you've been sexually assaulted and a ritual that, that that symbolically washes away that person's un, non-consensual touch, you know, on your body. I can totally see what's even feminist about that. Uh, right. but, but I don't want to yuck anybody else's yum. And part of me was thinking as I listened to this call that what they're doing is kind of a, a riff. If, you know, if, if it doesn't have misogynistic connotations for the caller and her partner, a riff on a kind of allowing the erotic tension to build up chastity play. Yeah. There's some denial that's what I was, here I, that's what I was gonna say. that could be playful that they've discovered in the, you know, almost a repurposing of what I think is a frankly misogynistic ritual. The mikvah, if it's a, if it's tied to, you know, cleansing a woman of the, you know, the, the stink or stench of menstruation, but they found a way to harness it playfully in their relationship, almost right. Orgasm denial, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of yeah. erotic tension to build thing that, that sometimes I recommend to people, particularly in the hot and heavy early days of a relationship to not touch each other for a couple of days can really build that tension and be very, very sexy. But I'm, I'm just slightly hesitant to endorse this because of its roots. Yeah, and I mean that's and that's the thing. I mean, so I was going to kind of go to a similar place with it, where first of all, I would say um, the way she talked about it, it didn't sound like it was put upon her, right? She talked about it in a way that sounded like she was 
This is something that she does. You know, she wasn't asking whether you or I, if you brought in a rabbi, were going to endorse it. So that's why I say, like, there are really are women who reclaim this, and there's some other resources. You can actually look up mikvah. I was even looking it up on Facebook and asking some of my female colleague friends about it. And there are some really good resources that people can read about the reclaiming of it. So I agree that in some Orthodox communities, it's still used as a control. It's still sort of smacks of, of, of stench or whatever. So I'm with you. I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to that, but the way she talked about it was not like, Oh, I have to do this. It's you now, this is just, it's a requirement. I mean, it sounded like she was kind of owning it. And so my recommendation was going to be, if this is the life that they choose, if this is the stringency that they have to see it as a way to build up. I mean, I was, I was going to say something similar, like what if they wrote to, to each other, you know, you could write like, this is what I'm going to do to you when we finally, can, can be together again and make it sort of a, a much more of a play thing and, and acknowledging that for a lot of couples, you know, the, the, the things can become very rote mm-hmm. and you can just get into the mm-hmm. same, the same routine as always. So there, there can be value to it. I mean, personally, I think the amount of time you're saying every month, right? 10 to 14 days a month is, it's a little crazy. So I, I would agree with you. I don't subscribe to that personally. And if she were looking for sources that would say right after the immersion, you can be together again, you don't have to wait additional days, I'd, I'd be happy to direct her to those as well. There are definitely, you know, other other ways that this that this can be understood. But if she were to want to stick to her practice, then I would say, yeah, like do other things like, you know, kind of give each other looks around the kitchen and like, you know, graze <laughs> up against each other, you know, and just like kind of be like, you know, four days left, you know, put up a calendar on the wall and be like, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do such crazy things to you when, <laughs> when this is over. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, yeah. It, it seems like a lot to do every month, but I can, I can see the way, a way to reclaim it. Yeah. yeah. Maybe if there's a way to, you know, it sounds like they're already being playful. She says that one of the things they do during this period is mutual masturbation. And I think what she meant by that right. was not, I masturbate him, he masturbates me, but we masturbate together without touching each right. other, which itself is kind of hot. But it went from, you know, a two-week period every three months to two weeks out of every month. And she says it's hard for them. And, you know, ask for my suggestion. My suggestion would be knock it off. But your suggestion might be to to find, you know, if this is about faith for them, to find uh, a justification, um, not a rationalization, but a justification for shortening this period uh, of no touching from perhaps two weeks to a week. Maybe if they can embrace right. and it. And it's, it's probably, it's probably not something that they can do on their own, but depending on which denomination they're part of and how much they're willing to look at, you know, what we call halacha, which is sort of Jewish law. Uh, there are, there are exceptions or there are, there are, there are changes that are made, you know, because one of the saddest things I, I found out about many years ago, or, or there are women who's just their cycle or their cycle works so that such that they are most fertile right after their period. Mm-hmm. And so those couples, if they're not having sex for a week every month, like they're, they're actually, you know, they're infertile, but entirely by just cruel fate, right? They should be able to have kids. And there's a, even a movie where one of the couples in the movie is like this, where, you know, they've decided that the woman must be the one who can't have children. So the rabbi, there's a rabbi tells them to get divorced. And it turns out that she was fertile, but it, you know, it was, I was either him or, you know, my point again is like, you're missing some important days when you could get pregnant or, you know, or just in this case, maybe be together. Um, the, the religion is kind of messing you up. So the, it doesn't have to be like that. It's certainly one of my pieces. Of that was a concern for me too, as they're trying to get pregnant and they're not even able to touch each other for two weeks 
out of the month. Uh, I do want to back up and endorse something that you said, though. You know, people are always asking, how do you keep the spark alive? How do you spice a relationship back up sexually after you've been together for a long time? And one of the things I always tell people is that early on, when you were strangers to each other, there were a lot of obstacles you had to overcome before you could be, you know, while you were, even those first few times you had sex, you were pushing past things, you know, even if it was just your own insecurities or, uh, you know, being a little fearful of being, you know, naked and vulnerable with this person for the first time that you barely knew, uh, there were a lot of obstacles. And sometimes, you know, if you've been together a long time, it can be sexy to create an obstacle, even if it seems arbitrary that you have to clear to fuck and this may do it, but, you know, my recommendation about obstacles is to be creative and mix them up, not to create one obstacle that ruins your sex life half the year. Every month. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, that's the, that's the problem. And when it was once every three months, it's like you can be fun and creative about it. But now it's a lot harder. And that's why I say, you know, one option would be to look at resources. I was going to mention three things. So one is to look at resources online like Mayim Chaim and just see how they talk about reclaiming it and ways that it can be positive. And then the second thing would be like their support. There might be groups of women who grapple with this and who, you know, are sex positive through more modern sites. She, she mentioned that like a lot of the women that do what she does are not the kind of people you want to talk to about these things. But my point is if you do a little research on Facebook groups and stuff, there are, I know younger women who, you know, I haven't had a lot of conversations about sex positivity, but I know that they're more progressive and would be, I think, more amenable to having conversations about how to how to deal with this, and, and to help maybe figure out some sources that give you that give you back a couple of days. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're willing to go there, which you might be. Um, but then I think um, also to try to make it make it fun. I mean, if it's if they have to do it this way, you know, to say like I bought something fun, I bought a new toy, or I bought some new clothing, and I'm not going to show it to you. So I mean, to try to find ways to mix it up to make that time feel still kind of playful and fun, I think would, would make sense. Would you ever tell someone who was doing this and it was making them unhappy as it seems to be making the caller unhappy just to stop? Um, you know, to be honest, Dan, yes and no. You know, I, I am definitely more of the opinion that religion should be joyful and should be something that you feel is enhancing your life. But I say to my congregation a lot that there are people out there, and unfortunately you know about it a lot, Dan, I think you've been the victim of this, when you, religion is used as a sledgehammer mm-hmm. and telling people you must and you cannot and never and always, and, and I don't think it should be like that. So I've had examples, you know, just very briefly, like somebody who was grieving a parent and had there's a ribbon you're supposed to wear when you're grieving for a week or a month, and this woman said her mom was not nice, was not good to her, like they had a really bad relationship and it hurt her to wear the ribbon. And she said, I know I have to, but I'm really grappling with it. And I said, as you, I hope you would expect, take it off. Like, don't do that. That's not what religion is for. It's supposed to be making this experience of connection to somebody who's, who's died and to, you know, to be in relationship with them. But if that relationship is hurting you, no, that's not what religion is trying to say. No. I, I would hope not. You know, life is hard right. enough without, right. you know, embracing rituals that – that hurt you or torment you or, or make life more difficult. Uh, you know, I'm from a a very Catholic family and, but, but I'm, you know, a post Vatican II for the most part Catholic. And a lot of the sort of, you know, making your life harder stuff fell away when I was a kid, fell out of my family's Mm -hmm. 
practice of Catholicism, and it became more about ritual and ceremony and a, a way to solemnize moments, like when we had last rites for my mother when she was dying. Like I'm perceived as anti-Catholic, perceived as anti-Christian. Literally, the last thing oh. I did for my mother was run through a hospital and find a priest um, yeah. to, to perform last rites for her, and it was very meaningful for me. And yeah. you know, all the prayers came back to me, and I said them with her. And having that to solemnize that moment, which, you know, connected her to her father and, uh, you know, our, her great grandparents or her grandparents, my great grandparents, it was, it had value, even though I don't believe uh, Jesus was divine. I don't believe in the Immaculate Conception. I don't believe in the Virgin Birth. I don't believe in the Ascension. I don't believe in the Resurrection. It was still meaningful. So I totally get how these rituals can be meaningful, but I, I really, I really bump on it being an obstacle in the way it is in this woman's life. I know, life. I know. And, and, I mean, I, and I couldn't decide either. Like, she, she talks about it as very matter-of-fact, and I couldn't decide if she meant it. Like, I, I do embrace this. It is something that I think is important, but now we're struggling. Or if it's a ritual that has become kind of onerous. And so I would say, you know, I would ask them to re-examine it or to look at sources with their rabbi, perhaps, if need be, and to say, what what is the minimum? And, and do we really need to do the maximum? Like, is that mm-hmm. really the requirement? You know, and uh, or, or, you know, we do this for a period of time and we know that it's going to end. I was also going to mention, you know, it's interesting. You, I think your mom came up in the last time we talked five years ago also. I, I always get a sense listening to your to your calls and your conversations that you have a very religious kind of spirit, even as you're angry at it, because it's mistreated <laughs> you. You know, you talk about like, you, you know, your sky friend, your yeah. imaginary sky friend. And I, 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 I get it. I mean, it's hurt you and a lot of lapsed Catholics, but ultimately you still have a sense of the value of ritual and the value of, 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 of having, you know, moments and traditions that guide your life. And I think that's, that's my, that's always my feeling is it should be there and there are times when we fast and there are times when we grieve because that's part of life too. So it's not like everything has to be happy all the time, Mm -hmm. but it does have to be meaningful and it does have to sort of give you a sense of value and, you know, mindfulness. And if it doesn't like, yeah, stop doing it. (laughs) I I also think of the, you know, the the traditional wedding ceremony and the father walking the, you know, the daughter down the aisle and passing the daughter off to the groom at the altar or at the the front of whatever space they're, you're getting married in. And that has almost a new meaning for most people. You know, it's about love and affection and acknowledgement and, you know, families embracing coming together. Some people have the mother and the father walk the bride down the aisle. But I do think we have to, you know, even people who embrace it in a different way and and, uh, endow it with a different meaning understand its roots are in a very kind of deeply sexist understanding of women as property. Yeah. And to, yeah. embrace, to to give it a new meaning, you still have to acknowledge what the old meaning was. You have to exactly. know what you're discarding exactly. if you're going to endow something with a new meaning. And, you know, I, I joke, I, you know, Sky Friends, I, I respect people of faith. I respect, you know, my parents. My dad's still alive. He's a person of faith, goes to mass every week. Uh, and, you know, I often joke that if you took all my columns and podcasts and put them in a pot and boiled them all down to their essence, you're left with do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's yes. just, there's a lot yes. more that can be done unto a person in my world than in uh, yes, right. my grandparents' world. Right, but the point is, like, if you want it to be done to you, then you should be okay with, you know, then it's okay to do it to others. I think that's exactly right. I get back to that all the time, you know. I And we have a very famous rabbinic source from 2,000 years ago when some, you know, a heretic came and sort of trying to mock him said, uh, 
you know, uh, teach me the whole religion, all of the Torah while I'm standing on one foot. And the first rabbi, like, throws him out and is insulted at the stupidity. And then the second guy, who's like our hero, Hillel, says, do unto others as you would do as you'd have them do to you. That's the whole thing. Now go and study it. <laughs> and, 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 and it's true. Like, that's the whole thing. That's the message we come back to over and over and over again. And when you, if you're, if you're mistreating other people and using religion as a sledgehammer, then it's not, it's not working. But, you know, I, I think, I mean, and they sound a little bit like they can be letter of the law people speaking, uh, by the way, just the first part of the call. <laughs> I was just thinking also, like, she's very specific about like, oral has to be this particular way. Whereas I think, as you described, there's a lot you can do. There's a lot you can do to pleasure a person and each other that doesn't have to be this official description of what it looks like. Like, you know, think outside the box. Yeah, it, can't, it doesn't always have to be exactly tit for tat. Like if he's meeting your needs and you're <laughs> meeting his, you can meet each other's needs in different ways. And if the, right. you know, if, if the caller's partner doesn't miss oral and enjoys performing oral and doesn't, isn't hung up on not having oral performed on him, take that yes for an answer. And, and, and circling back right. to the second part of the problem quickly, because uh, we're going to have to go. Um, this is a problem yeah. that may solve itself in time. If call her, if you get pregnant, you're not going to be having your period for a while. And once you have kids and you're breastfeeding, uh, you can, and if you go back on birth control because you want to space your kids out, you may be back at the three months or longer uh, before you have to face these 12 weeks or these 12 days without any hugging or kissing or touching uh, or coming on or in each other as opposed to masturbating at each other from opposite sides of the bedroom. Any final thoughts for the caller, Rabbi Gerber? Uh, no, just again to look at some of the sources online. You know that they're they're if the people in our community are not necessarily supportive, which happens sometimes. That that there's a lot of resources out there for new traditions and new approaches, and uh, a lot of I, I would even say rabbis and rabbinic sources that are, are willing to be sex positive and have you know open conversations about this kind of thing. So I think it's great that you took the call, and I'm I'm happy that you included me. Thank you. Rabbi Jeremy Gerber, Rabbi of Congregation, Ohev Shalom in Wallingford, Pennsylvania. Check out his blog at takeontorah.blogspot.com. Hey, Rabbi, Rabbi Gerber, thank you so much. It was really a blast speaking with you again. And uh, I'm going to keep my eye out for a call that's not necessarily a Jewish thing to have you back on to, uh, to discuss with me, and soon. I'd love to, anytime, anytime. Thank you. Hi there at St. Dan Savage and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am a 59-year-old straight male that has become a listener late in life and I'm now eagerly awaiting Tuesdays in your new episodes. So I have a sexual issue that I'm hoping you or some of your listeners could provide some advice or tips on. Frankly, I need to learn how to orgasm quicker. Some of the context here is I have been married for 27 years and the past seven to eight years were a sexless marriage. Hence, um, I took matters into my own hands almost daily. Uh, my masturbation sessions would usually last about 45 minutes with the goal of climaxing secondary to maximizing the pleasure from edging. So now fast forward to now where I've met someone that has a sex drive equal to mine and I find, one, difficulty maintaining my erection and two, taking forever to climax. I'm very healthy. My plumbing is good. BP and other markers are solid. Diet is clean. And there is incredibly infrequent alcohol and or weed use. I'm sure a bit of this issue is mental, but I think that much is a result of my long-term, um, shall we say, training regimen. 
I imagine the issue of taking a long time to come may be one of those first world problems, but it's still a bit of an issue that I don't want to lock into my head. I've all but eliminated porn consumption as well as frequent masturbation times um, from a daily routine to now maybe two or three times a month. Any other thoughts, tips, or suggestions you may have, I'm eager to hear. Sometimes you just got to work with the dick you're dealt or the hand you're dealt. But in this case, the dick you're dealt. You're getting older. I don't think this is necessarily about your masturbation routines when you were in a sexless stage of your previous relationship, I assume, or your porn consumption habits or pot or anything else. This may just be a function of aging and you're misattributing how much longer it takes you to climax or more difficulty obtaining and sustaining an erection, as they say in the ED ads, to something that you can control or something that you can fix. And it may not be something that you can control or something you're doing or something that you were doing wrong, but just about aging and your body changing. There is something proactive you can do about getting erections. You can take ED meds. They really do work and they are very effective. One of the problems with ED meds for many men though is that they result in delayed ejaculation. They make it a little bit harder to come. So this problem that you're already having where you take too long to come for your partner, I assume, uh, could get a little bit worse. But here's what you do. Don't eliminate masturbation from your routine. Incorporate masturbation into partnered sex. You know how to touch yourself to get yourself closer, to get yourself there, to get yourself off. Sometimes we have this hang-up about partnered sex where we're not supposed to touch ourselves. Oh, look, mom, no hands. I'm having sex with somebody else. Therefore, I'm not supposed to touch my own junk. Get that out of your head. Do the opposite. If you're taking too long to climax for your partner, if she's had her 30 or 40 orgasms and is done and ready for you to have your one pathetic orgasm, the one orgasm most men can have except for men without refractory periods, and they may be the true male unicorns out there, when she's ready for you to come, stroke yourself. Get yourself close. Get yourself to the point of orgasmic inevitability. You know, fuck her for a while. Enjoy it. Pull out. Stroke. Get a little closer. Jump back in. Fuck for a little bit more. Pull out. Stroke. Get a little closer. Maybe get yourself to that point of orgasmic inevitability, that sensation of going over the falls, where even if your mom bursts into the room, you're still going to come. And then dive back in for the last three or four strokes and come. So, Get some ED meds to help with the erections and deploy your own right hand or your left hand, depending on whether you're right-handed or left-handed, to get you closer. Don't eliminate masturbation from your life. Incorporate masturbation into your partnered sex life. All right. Before we get to Lovecast listener response calls, let's read some Lovecast listener tweets. After listening to my go-for-it response to the actual witch whose boyfriend wanted her to dress up like a Halloween witch and cast a fake spell on him, Thomas Carver tweeted, I had to laugh when at fake Dan Savage said he's not asking you to dress up like a Wiccan priestess during sex, since in many traditional covens, that just means getting naked. Good point, Thomas. Ginger Somerville tweets, hey, at fake Dan Savage, thanks for reminding Lovecast listeners of best practices for weddings in the midst of COVID fatigue. I no longer feel like an ass for not attending a friend's celebration. You are welcome, Ginger, and thank you for doing the right thing by declining that invitation. The Alliest tweets, watching CNN coverage and can't stop laughing every time they put Rick Santorum's name on the banner. Thank you at fake Dan Savage for giving me some laughs 
during this stressful week. You are welcome, the alliest, and I'd like to thank Cheyenne Summers, who not only upgraded to the Magnum Savage Lovecast this week, but tweeted about it too. We appreciate everybody's mentions of the Lovecast on their social media accounts. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on the show, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hi, this call is in response to the woman from episode 732 freaking out about the blanket from the from her boyfriend's grandmother. Like, listen, my grandmother was making blankets her entire life. So she did. She made blankets for every grandchild, every everybody, every second cousin. And I, being 42, had never wanted a baby ever, ever. And guess what? Grandma made me a blanket anyway. I took it. I loved it. I held on to it for years up until the point when my best friend at the age of like 38, you know, she had a baby and I turned around and I gave that blanket to my best friend and her knowing how much I loved my grandmother and held on to this blanket for 25 years. She loved it. She cried. She cherishes it. It was the best gift for her that I could have given her, you know, cause she knew how much I love my grandma, my grandma loved me and that this meant the world. And, you know, it, it's really not a big deal. If, if grandma makes you something, you take it. And that's pretty much how, how it goes down. Hi there. This is a response to the caller on episode 732 who got really um, socially anxious after smoking weed. And I just want to let you, you know, honey, you are not alone. A friend of mine and I were smoking a spliff while frisbee golfing once, and she had a totally weird reaction to the weed. Um, ended up running away from me when a big group of really cute boys walked up to us to help us find a frisbee. So definitely keep an eye on your smoke intake, but don't stress about it. Dan was right. You're probably fine. You might get a kick out of this. Saturday morning, I woke up super horny. I was jacking off, and just as I started coming, I hear all of this cheering and all of these car horns as I'm blowing off. And I thought, oh, shit, this is the very moment. And I had to quickly jump up, clean myself up a little bit, throw on a robe, and run outside to see the streets full of people freaking out, cheering, car horns, waving arms. And uh, maybe that was the best orgasm ever. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question you want answered or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get your questions and comments to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064. That's 206-302-2064. Or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone and then email your question or comment to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. We, me and Nancy, we are hosting another Savage Love live stream on December 12th. I'll be answering as many of your burning questions as I can live from my living room. Email us your questions ahead of time at livestream at savagelovecast.com or you can ask your questions when you join us on the live stream. Grab your tickets right now at savagelovecast.com slash events. And while you're online and who isn't online all the time nowadays, while you are online, be sure to get your tickets for the second volume of Hump's Greatest Hits with several shows to choose from throughout November. Head over to humpfilmfest.com and watch a collection of some of our favorite dirty movies from the last 15 years. 
And speaking of hump, the deadline for submissions to the 16th Annual Hump Film Festival is coming right up. It's December 4th. Find out how you can make and submit a film for hump and win large cash prizes by heading over to humpfilmfest.com slash submit. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for masking up. And thank you, everyone, for voting. Well, thank you to the 75 million of you out there, 75 million and counting, who voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris.